Well, hey, everybody, so glad you're joining us, glad to have all of our campuses, as well as those of you who are watching online with us today. I'm, I'm really excited that you're here, but I have to tell you what I'm most excited about. We finally made it to the end of this faith and politics series. So I'm like, you know, we got through relatively unscathed. I didn't get too many emails over the last couple of weeks. Nobody's protested. Nobody's burned anything down. So I think we're doing okay. So let me just say thank you. You have really embraced this uh, difficult and messy topic uh, in a really positive and encouraging and and really self-evaluating way. Now, for those of you who are new and wondering, what are we talking about. For the last several weeks, we've been exploring together as a church this intersection of our faith and our politics. And so as we're kind of taking this journey, we've recognized that this certainly has not been an easy topic to cover, but I think most of us would agree it's a very needed topic to cover, especially as we're heading in once again to an election season. We know the reality over the next couple of months will be surrounded by this over-exaggerated importance of politics and elections tends to take on in our culture. And we can find ourselves, even as believers, getting caught up in the hype. And while certainly uh, we as Christians are to live out our faith in every area of our life, including our politics, I think we've been able to recognize that sometimes we have a tendency of ending up putting our faith in our politics, right? We, We get more focused on elections and policies and Supreme Court decisions than living out the mission that Jesus has called us to. And of course, as our culture more and more just kind of devolves into shouting matches, you know, the the free exchange of ideas, that foundational principle on which our nation was built now is just people screaming from each side at one another. Sometimes it's hard to know as believers, as the church, how do we allow our voice and our values to be heard in the town square, but doing it in a way that doesn't make us look like, sound like, and act like everybody else? How do we make sure that we don't allow the church to become just another political group, just another ideology, a group of people who are trying to just get things the way they want? And so what we've discovered in this journey is that really the most effective way for us to impact our culture and our community is not by seeking political power, but it's by being willing to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. To learn how to live, act, and maybe most importantly, react different from everybody else. And so last week, we delved into the writings of a guy by the name of Paul. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Paul, who we often call the Apostle Paul, was a very early follower of Jesus who was responsible for spreading the message of the gospel, Jesus' message, across the entire Roman world and planting and developing these little Christian communities, these little churches in cities and towns and villages throughout the Roman Empire. An empire, by the way, a culture that was not only different from what Paul was used to, but a culture that was often hostile to the message Paul proclaimed. And and a, a culture that lived in direct opposition 
in offense to the very things that Paul believed and the God he represented. I mean, if you think America is going to hell in a handbasket, it's nothing compared to the first century Roman Empire. And yet Paul's strategy to engage, to change this culture was not to seek political power. It was not to take to the streets and rage against all the things that people were doing wrong. It was to love and serve the people around him by identifying with them and meeting them where they were. You might remember this verse from last week, 1 Corinthians 9.22. Paul says, here's my strategy for changing the world. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And I just have to say, in today's political climate, that seems very weak and very passive. Like, you know, you can't just go along. You can't just, you know, not speak out. You can't rage against that. How's it? That's never going to work, Paul, until you realize that it did. Within a few hundred years, these small communities of Christians who were loving and serving their neighbors, who were living, acting, and reacting differently than everyone else around them, transformed the entire Roman Empire. In fact, I would go so far as to say ultimately ended up shaping Western civilization. I mean, think about this. The Colosseum in Rome, right? The place where thousands and thousands of Christians were slaughtered for their beliefs for the entertainment purposes of the emperor and the people of Rome. In that same Colosseum, you can walk in it today and guess what is in the place where the emperor used to sit? The cross of Jesus. There's a cross in the very area where the emperor used to sit. See, see for Paul, this idea of meeting people where they were, becoming all things, identifying with them so that he could have an opportunity to share the gospel message of hope with them. These were not just words on a whiteboard from a strategy meeting, right? This wasn't just a, a, a strategy saying that he put on a t-shirt. It's actually the way Paul lived his life. And in fact, today we're gonna look at an example of how Paul engaged a culture around him in order to change or transform that culture. And I love this passage. I love this story. It's found in Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn or click there. If not, we have some message notes available in print. Also online, you can get them on the app, the Cedar Creek Church app, or you can just go to our website, cedarcreekchurch.net forward slash notes. It's got, so you can follow along so we can all walk through this really cool story. If you've never heard it, it's an amazing uh, story. If you're familiar with it, you might see something in it today that you've never seen before. And as we unpack how Paul engages the culture in a city known as Athens, we're going to see practical ways for us to engage our culture with the gospel in order to bring about change. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background. Uh, Paul is traveling with two other guys, a guy by the name of Silas 
and a young mentoree of Paul by the name of Timothy. And they've been traveling through what is known as Greece. That was part of the ancient Greek civilization that, you know, really fostered big. But it's now been taken over. It's been absorbed into the Roman Empire. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy are in a Greek city called Thessalonica when they start running into some problems from the people in the Jewish synagogue. The religious folks, particularly these Jewish religious elitists, they are kind of like, this Paul is this bad message. And so, because Paul is kind of the lightning rod for that controversy, it's decided that Paul will leave the town. He'll go on ahead and he'll leave Silas and Timothy behind for a couple of weeks so they can work with and encourage this little church that they've planted. But while Paul is in Athens just chilling, just waiting on his buddies to catch up so they can get back to work, he notices something in this city of Athens that moves him to action. He sees something about this culture that causes him to engage this culture with the truth of the gospel. And as we unpack what Paul did, I think these are still relevant for us when it comes to engaging our culture around us. So number one, the first thing we have to do is we gotta recognize the real issues. We gotta recognize the real issues. I mean, obviously, it's easy for us as Christians to turn on the news, look in our schools, look in our streets, and see the problems. We see the issues in our culture. It's easy to see all the things that we say people are doing wrong, the behaviors that are against the teaching of Scripture. It's easy to see that. It's a lot harder to see the underlying cause of those behaviors, to see what is it that's causing people to live this way. In fact, notice verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Two things I want you to notice. One is that phrase, greatly distressed. It actually is a little deeper than that. The, the Greek word that is used there means that he was provoked. He was troubled. He was angered by all these idols he saw. I think the word we'd probably use for it today would be triggered. Paul saw all these idols in the city of Athens and he was triggered. It, it made him angry. And while anger was his first response to this behavior, to this lifestyle, as we'll see in a little bit, it's not how he acted when he engaged the people. The second thing I want you to notice is that phrase, full of idols. It, it doesn't just mean there were a lot of them, although there were a lot of them. Because the thing the Romans did when the Roman Empire expanded, it allowed uh, those civilizations it conquered to continue their religious and cultural practices. Because the Romans were pantheists, they just absorbed all the Greek gods that were there in the city, and they just added to and merged in all their Roman gods. So you got all of these old, hundred-year-old Greek statues of the gods, and you know Zeus and all those you're familiar with from mythology, and then they just incorporated all the Roman gods when the Romans came in and took over. So there were literally statues and altars all over the place, but the word that it's used there for full of idols, do you know what it literally means? Given over to, overwhelmed by. Like it's almost as if being drowned underneath all of these 
idols. Now listen, I want to be really careful here and I don't want to read into the word something that's not in it, but, but I do just believe that, see, when Paul saw all these idols that people were worshiping, he was not just moved by what the people were doing. I believe he was also moved by what it was doing to them. To be under the weight of all these different gods with all their different ways to appease, it had to be an exhausting way of life. And see, for us, it's easy to see the idols that are worshiped in our culture today, right? We, we see these idols all around us. Unprecedented greed, that's easy to see. Ethnocentricity and identity politics. Inappropriate application of sexuality. Moral relativism where there is no true truth. We, we see that and it angers us and it should anger us. But the question is, are we willing to look past the behaviors in order to see the difficulty, pain, and struggles that those behaviors are causing the people who are trapped in them? Hey, side note, little bonus content. Have you noticed how easy it is to see the idols in other people's lives and how hard it is to see the idols in our lives, the things we put above Jesus, the things that are more important to us than Jesus? Because, I mean, come on, church, let's be honest. We have our idols today, right? I mean, we don't have statues, you know, that we worship at, but we, we've got our idols, right? The idol of consumerism, that I think drives much of the American church today. Like what's in it for me? What can I get from the church? We like to worship every now and then at the idol of protectionism, right? Got to hold on to what we got, right? We got to circle the wagons, me, my four, no more. In fact, a recent survey of American pastors said, these pastors said that their congregations were more than twice as likely to be afraid of refugees than to desire to serve those refugees. We, we have our idols. And here's the thing, to engage the culture for change, we've got to be willing, yes, to deal with our own altars, but we also got to recognize the deeper issues that are driving the behaviors and actions and beliefs of the people around us. So you got to see the real issues behind the surface issues. Number two, the second thing Paul teaches us is we need to address the issues based on who, not what. We need to address the issues based on who we're talking to, not what particular issue offends us, right? We have to engage people by starting where they are, not by engaging them based on where we want them to be. It's great that you know all the things the Bible says about all the things that are happening in our culture. It's great that you know what the Bible teaches about all of these issues. I'm just saying it's not helpful to have that conversation with somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible. You can't start there. You got to start with who they are and where they are instead of what the issue is. In fact, we'll see 
You know, Paul, when he, he gets an opportunity to speak to a large gathering of the intellectuals, the movers and shakers in Athens, he gets a chance to give kind of this TED talk in front of them. And Paul preaches the entire gospel and never once quotes scripture. In fact, the only thing he does quote in his TED talk is their own poets, right? He goes into their culture to bring them out to the gospel. Instead of trying to run into their culture and beat them over the head with the Bible when they don't even believe the Bible is God's word. We have to meet them where they are. We have to address it based on who. In fact, that's how Paul ends up getting an invitation to give this TED talk. He starts with his own culture. Notice verse 17. It says, so he, talking about Paul, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day. He started with those he had the most in common with, the Jews who lived in Athens and worshiped in Athens. And look, their issue was not the idols in the streets. They weren't worshiping those idols, but their idol was their heritage their ability to keep Moses' law. That's what they were depending on. And so that's where Paul starts with them. Now look, we're not told specifically in Acts 17 that Paul did this in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, but I think it's a safe assumption to say that Paul started with their own scripture. And the reason I say that is because we have many examples Throughout the book of Acts, where, where Paul does that, where he engages with Jews in the synagogue, and he walks them through their own history to show them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He meets them where they are. He goes into their culture to bring them to the gospel message. And he doesn't just do that in large group religious or intellectual gatherings. He does that in his daily life, his daily encounters. Because look, it said he does this in the synagogue, but he also did it in the marketplace day by day. Now, I don't know if he did it like a street preacher, if it was one-on-one conversation. I don't know. But what I do know is he met people where they were. You know, for the last 30 years, church, the most effective way for us to reach unchurched people in our community was to invite them to come to church with us. We've seen that strategy used incredibly effective over the last 30 years. And you know why it was effective to invite people to come to church? Because the bulk of the people we were inviting were baby boomers, who as a group basically had an overall positive view of the church and church people. Now, they weren't a part of it, and they didn't necessarily believe in it, but they looked at the church and thought, well, those are pretty good people just trying to do good things. That's the way baby boomers looked at the church. Guess what? That is not necessarily the way most Gen Xs and millennials look at the church, those who are outside the church. And so while baby boomers were open to an invitation to church, more and more the younger generation is no longer open to an invitation to church. Now look, I'm not saying that we shouldn't invite people to church. I'm not saying that it's give up on the strategy. It doesn't work. It still does work. It's still effective. I'm just saying we need to be reaching people where they are. 
to be willing to meet with them, whether they'll ever come to church or not, to meet with them in coffee shops and in the office break room and wherever Jesus brings them into our lives, to meet and connect with them in a way that will lead to authentic relationships with them, that will open the door to genuine conversations with them that will allow us to share the reason for the hope we have. Number three, the third thing we have to do to engage the culture for change is we have to answer the questions people are asking. We have to answer the questions that people are asking. Too many times we as believers are good at answering questions that we might have had before we were believers. The problem is they're not necessarily the questions that everybody around us is asking. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. You guys are familiar with the evangelical pickup line? You know what I'm talking about, right? When we go, hey, if you were to die tonight, why would God let you into his heaven? You're familiar with that. Some of you have been trained in it. Some of you have asked that question. And we, we know the answer to that, right? We've been trained in the Romans road and the four happy hops to heaven and the four spiritual laws. We know how to, generally, we know how to walk people through the plan of salvation. Put your faith in Jesus, his substitutionary death on the cross, and you will spend eternity with him. We know how to answer that question. The problem is not as many people are asking that question. Did you know that? According to recent LifeWay research, They polled uh, 1,200 random Americans. And one of the questions they ask them is, how often do you wonder about whether or not you'll go to heaven or hell when you die? And then they gave them uh, different levels of answers, like from every day to uh, occasionally, every now and then, all the way down to never. I never think about it. So how many people, what percent of random Americans do you think think about whether or not they'll go to heaven or hell every day. I was really surprised by the results. It's higher than I thought. It's 20% of people say they worry about it or wonder about it every day. But then when you look, 18% of those who said they wonder about it every day identified themselves as born-again Christians. So I'm like, wait, there's some disconnect there, right, between what it means to be a believer and the results of going to heaven. But what I found most fascinating in this survey is that 44% of the people around us say they never wonder about whether they'll go to heaven or hell. Never think about it. So I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about the eternal salvation provided through the gospel. I'm just saying that's not a question that everybody's asking around us. Might be a great way to have a gospel conversation with somebody who's facing death in hospice or being deplored to war. That that may be a question they're asking. I'm just saying to stand on the street corner with the turn or burn, change or you're going to hell, is not necessarily effective with at least 44% of the people we're trying to reach. We need to be able to answer and point to Scripture and the gospel for the questions people are asking. And that's exactly what Paul does. 
Because while Paul was observing all of these idols in the city of Athens, he discovers an altar, an idol, that is inscribed to an unknown God. they got all these other gods, and now they've got an altar to an unknown God. And see, I believe Paul, through the Holy Spirit, discerned from that altar to an unknown God that there was a deeper question the people of Athens were asking. And I think it was that even with all of these gods they had, I think they were wondering, are we missing something? Is there another God? Is there an overarching God for all of these gods? The reason I think that's what Paul discerned is that's what he addresses right off the bat in his TED Talk. Look at verses 22 and 23. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now we read that and we think Paul's getting all up in their grill, right? Because of the word ignorant, you are ignorant about what you worship. I understand to call somebody ignorant is demeaning, in this culture, but in the culture of Athens, it was not. It simply means you have yet to learn. There's stuff you don't know. And so if you read this passage, you'll see the people of Athens, they're known for wanting to know stuff they don't know. This is what they do. They love to talk about different ideas and and learn new things. So Paul meets them right where they are. He starts with the question they're asking. And if you read the rest of his TED Talk, you'll see he connects that question and answers it with the gospel message. And so even though less and less people in our culture see the church as relevant or having answers, they're still seeking answers spiritual answers. And that's especially true of the younger generation. I mean, surveys show that the younger generations are actually more spiritual, more inquisitive about spiritual things than even my generation as baby boomers. But the spiritual questions they're asking are less about heaven and hell and more about purpose and meaning and identity. In fact, let me just ask you, what do you think is the biggest question our culture is wrestling with today? What is the biggest issue? What is the biggest question that our culture is asking and wrestling with today? Well, I'd say one of them that has to be on the very top of that list is this issue of gender and sexuality, right? This is no longer some fringe issue for California and New York. It's, it's on our streets. It's in our homes. It's in our schools today. And listen, we see it as a scriptural issue, and it is a scriptural issue. But everyone else in our culture sees it as a justice issue about equality and fairness and the value of a human being. And because that's how they see it, If we're going to engage the culture around us, we're going to have to go a little deeper with our answers. We're not going to be able to just sit back and say, well, the Bible's against it, so I'm against it. Or, you know, the Bible says Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. We have to go a little deeper, have a little clear answer. And here's the thing. Don't miss this. The gospel addresses this issue clearly. 
Because see, outwardly, it looks like an issue of gender and sexuality, but the issue behind the issue is identity. It's an identity question, and and the gospel speaks so clearly to what our true identity is, and it transcends all of those other things that culture tells us is important. Now listen, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'll repeat what I said last week. I'm not talking about compromising your convictions, and I'm not talking about watering down the truth of God's word. I'm just saying to engage the culture around us, we might want to change our approach. We might want to develop a little clearer, more articulate answer to the questions people and families are wrestling with today. And then finally, number four, and look, this one, this is the only one that matters. Of all four of these, this is really the only thing any of us can do to change anything in the world around us. And it's simply this, proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. We don't engage the culture around us so that we can be cool and trendy and cutting edge. We engage the culture around us to proclaim Christ to the culture around us. And that's exactly what Paul does. He starts his speech quoting their poets and answering the question, addressing the question, their answer, but he takes them to the gospel. He takes them to the name of Jesus. And notice in verse 30, Paul says, but now he, now God, commands all people everywhere to repent. See, Paul gets to the repentance. He just doesn't start by standing up and saying, you people got some problems and you need to repent. He meets them where they are, focuses on the questions they're wrestling with, and then takes them to the gospel. You know, sadly, that word repent has a kind of a bad rap in our culture today because maybe it's associated with the, you know, repent the end is near signs or the turn or burn slogans that we try to use to reach people. But really the word itself is an incredibly positive and encouraging word because it literally means just change directions, to do an about faith, that you don't have to run after this stuff that leaves you empty. You can turn and embrace the hope that will meet every need your heart has. And notice, by the way, it's Paul says, all need to repent. It's easy for us to look at things around us, people around us go, those people need to repent. But the gospel says, we all need to turn. We all daily need to recognize the idols that we're pursuing and turn and embrace the Savior who called us to a mission that far exceeds the temporary culture we live in. So really, I I think that may be just a great place to close not just this message, but maybe to close this whole series because if we want to change the world, then we have to start by changing me. By asking God to change me, to help me let go of these things that I'm comfortable and used to and grab hold to the new thing that God is doing in this time of transition. Look, there's no doubt the early church 
changed the world. Not only changed the Roman Empire, it shaped the entire Western civilization. But for that to happen, it required a church that was willing to be biblically passionate, spirit-filled, deeply compassionate, and mission-driven, who were willing through prayer and discernment and honest, transparent conversations, were willing to be who God called them to be and do what God called them to do. And that's what I want my life and the life of our church to be known for. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the mirror we've had to hold up to ourselves over these last several weeks to recognize that just sitting back in our self-righteousness and railing against all the things in the culture around us and seeking political solutions to spiritual problems, all of those things we have all been guilty of on the left and the right, the red and the blue. But thank you, Jesus, through the powerful truth of your word of reminding us that we serve a king and a kingdom who transcends all culture, all nations, all space and time. So help us to live that out. We need your spirit's power, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.